0: Dr. Kyle Bradford Jones is an associate clinical professor in family and preventative care at the U of U School of Medicine. In 2020, after three years of work, he released the book Fallible, a memoir of a young physician's struggle with mental illness. We talk about his journey as described in the book and debunk what it means to be a real physician and find fulfillment in your career. thank you for joining us for The Real MD Podcast. Excited to talk to you today. Um, we're going to talk about your book. We're going to talk about lots of things. Um, I wanted to ask you first to maybe talk about um, this idea of a real physician that you sort of trademarked in the book.
1: So in the book, it kind of describes the old school notion of what a physician is. It's someone who never leaves the hospital. Your personal life is out the window. You are 100% dedicated to your patients no matter what. There's one instance in the book where I was a medical student and uh, had an interaction with um, uh, an obstetrician. And he said, you never miss a patient. You don't if you don't eat, don't sleep, don't have relationships, nothing. He's like that's what a doctor is. You are there for the patient. And boy that rubbed me the wrong way and I thought, oh dear, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> and there's so much of that that's still prevalent that uh, idea of the old school physician where you know, so many trained 30, 40 plus years ago, where they were in the hospital constantly every day. And I can't even imagine that. And there is a shifting in our mindset, uh, and I think appropriately so, of no, it's okay to have a life too. You don't have to completely give everything you have to this uh, mistress of a profession, you know?
0: Did you realize? What you were getting into when you started medical school?
1: Yes, and no. Uh, I knew there was kind of that notion, and there's the idea that medicine is a calling, um, which, you know, I, I still somewhat buy into, but not to the extent of previous uh, generations, I think. And so seeing it in action was probably a little more than I recognized or realized, but I did know there was some big commitment uh, so to speak that was required
0: so when I read that phrase real physician tm immediately I thought of real md and I'm like okay we're using some similar words here and then i um what I loved about the book is that you were really there's this effort to debunk that and to say yes and and I agree about the calling part but i uh, I think what I'm hearing you say too is that it's a calling but rethinking it and not at the expense of other things. Yes, I'm passionate about my job. Yes, it's something that I'm really invested in, but not at the expense of I'm bringing other things forward as well and not losing myself in the machine, which I think you kind of highlight really well. So, and essentially that's what realmd is is looking at as well, is sort of debunking all of these things and saying, you know, what you think a real physician is we, we need to look at that and, and change that. And so we can talk about that a little bit, but I think we needed to find another term from the book too, which is um, this idea of the gargoyle. Uh, what is the gargoyle?
1: So the gargoyle for me was in, in the book and in my own mind, it was a way to uh, kind of m- corporealize or make real uh, this idea of my anxiety and depression. Uh, The gargoyle, in general, is something, as we know, on cathedrals that is supposed to keep evil spirits out. And it felt like the gargoyle on my proverbial cathedral turned on me. And all of a sudden, it was keeping all of these things in. And so the whole time throughout the book and throughout much of my life, I'm wrestling with that and trying to figure out, okay, how do I tame the gargoyle, so to speak. Um, And I think near the end of the book, I mention how I have been able to control the gargoyle who's now on a leash. It's still there. It hasn't gone away, and it probably never will go away. But I'm in a position where it's not controlling me. I'm controlling it.
0: What led to the book?
1: Uh, Let's see, around 2013, 2014, uh, I had been a faculty member for uh, uh, two or three years at that point. And my experience both throughout residency and then thus far in my career was, hey, whenever I talk about my struggles, so many people respond positively. They, uh, they relate to it. And so I'm not the only one here. And so I started writing about it uh, on some blogs uh, medical blogs and and it was the same thing, getting very positive reactions. And uh, I was on a, a podcast with my wife where we were talking about how it impacts relationships and the marriage. And after we were done, the podcast host said, "Hey, you should write a book." And I thought, "Yeah, you know, I've always enjoyed writing, and it's obviously a message that resonates with people. And so, yeah, maybe I will." So it took me maybe three years or so to write it, because um, obviously it was just kind of here and there and when I had time and, and whatnot, but it was something where I really felt driven and that it was needed and necessary to help combat the stigma of how we as physicians and as students and residents struggle with so many different emotional and mental issues uh, throughout our training and our career.
0: I feel like you really tuned in to what the medical school experiences around uh, mental illness, anxiety, depression, the layers of life that are occurring at a graduate student age, and being a physician in training too. There's a, there's a something there that I think you really describe well. Can you talk about that environment a little bit?
1: Obviously, it was it was very difficult and and a huge transition for me. Um, as it is, I think for everybody, if you know, or, or at least the the majority of us, where I think there's multiple different elements to it. First of all, when you to get into medical school alone, you have to be very high achieving. You're typically near the top of your class. You've done all of these amazing things, and then you get to medical school, and everybody has, which is great. But then it's you've kind of had this self identity for years of hey, in high school I was near the top of my class and I always got good grades. And then college, same thing. And now everybody does. And so it just takes a a shift in mindset, first of all. But then also there is, it's extremely competitive. Uh, I went to the Medical College of Wisconsin, which had uh, roughly 200 students per class. And so there was... Everyone was trying to stand out in whatever way they could, just like in most medical schools. So you can get the competitive residency, you can do all these things, and so I quickly learned there was some backbiting, there was some putting some people down to make yourself look better, and I really struggled with that. You know, that's not that's not the way I operate, um, and so having to deal with that. Obviously, increased the anxiety that was already there of, boy, these, you know, this is not a collaborative environment. Um, And then you dealt with many attending physicians who would put you down publicly in front of the patient, in front of nurses, in front of other students. That was very detrimental to my learning. And looking back, I can recognize a lot of those physicians were probably going through the exact same thing that I was, and that's why they behaved that way. And so that was a great lesson to me of, hey, we're coming from the same place. I need to make sure I respond and react differently to what may be going on in my life.
0: Um, You know, the R for Real MD is is first relationships. Talk about the role of relationships as you've kind of come up in, and become a physician.
1: You know, I think there were different layers of, of relationships that were all important. Um, so uh, I was married. We had uh, one child entering medical school, had a second one during medical school, which for the most part, those were very positive things. Um, I The nice thing about having small children, and I recognize this isn't what everyone would experience, but as soon as I'm home, I'm in their world. Like, they don't know I'm a student or becoming a doctor, nor do they care. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm just dad, and I'm in their world, and so I did have that chance to kind of unplug. Uh, my wife was very supportive, though she was going through some of the similar challenges um, for uh, many different reasons, and so uh, that was challenging at times, but overall, it was a very positive thing and a necessary thing for me. Like you mentioned, I did have some friends and some solid support there, uh, both in the school as well as in my neighborhood. And, and with some of the, the negative mentorship, I, I had both, where I had some very positive ones, I had some very negative ones. Uh, I remember working with a family physician which obviously now I'm a family physician that's what I chose to go into but he was very uh first of all he was very <laughs> grumpy for lack of a better word <laughs> um he just kind of had a negative a negativity about him but the things that he was trying to get me to learn I didn't feel were as important so for example I wanted to know, okay, why did you select that antihypertensive um, medication? And he wanted me to memorize the doses. And that's what I was supposed to know for him. And I thought, well, I can just look that up. Like, that's very simple. But I want that nuance of, okay, well, why did you use that one? Um, and different things like that. And so then he was extremely critical if I didn't memorize all the dosages. Um, Where I wanted something a little different, and you know, certainly that's just one example. Um, But there was a lot of negativity coming from very many uh, of the attendings and physicians. And again, I think they were kind of dealing with many similar things. And so, uh, you know, I do have some some sympathy for them of what they were going through. But I made sure to recognize that's not how I want to respond to the same
0: pressures. In the literature, we talk about needing more positive role models. That's just such an important thing for trainees. Um, we hope that in a negative experience, uh, you know, that people will say, Oh, I don't want to become that. You know, but sometimes inadvertently, people become that. Do you, can you talk about or contrast that with maybe a positive role model?
1: Yeah, during an internal medicine rotation, um during part of the outpatient experience, there was a physician who was very supportive. He seemed to let some of the struggles roll off his back a little bit, not that he didn't face them, but he recognized, you know, this is this is what it is. I need to make the best of it, which it's kind of a sad way to have to deal with it, (laughs) but, uh, and so he was very nice, very encouraging, a great teacher. Um, I remember him saying, uh, to me that, Hey, you get it. I didn't really understood what he meant by that. Um, I think I do a little bit more now where uh, I recognized it was the machine. It was something you could easily get sucked into, but, There are ways you can keep that humanity um, and that empathy uh, for patients and for staff and for everyone you interact with. And recognizing, okay, there is a role to try to improve things and it's okay to struggle. You know, it's one of my mantras now is allow yourself some grace because. We are all struggling to some extent, especially in medicine.
0: Yeah, normalizing the the struggle. And I think this is a good segue into the next part of the acronym, which is the E, which we say excellence. And I think that that is a, kind of a bold thing to do, to say excellence. Um, but you do a good job of debunking excellence, I think. But can you talk more about that?
1: You know, I think in the in the book when i talk about the the quote the real physician and the old school that's a lot of it is not not fully just the the god complex that we're accused of all the time but being feeling that hey you know i'm I'm the only one that can do this. Or, you know, I'm the one that's going to save the day. This is how I work. It's kind of... Uh, Atul Gawande described it as the the lone cowboy riding into town. Like, okay, I'm the one that's going to fix you. And that was the definition of excellence. And nowadays, I want... You know, for myself, what that means for me is totally different. I want it to mean that... uh I am doing the best I can for my patients. That doesn't always mean I know the answers. Um, but it means that I am there with them through their journey. That, I think, is is more the element of excellence. And it doesn't mean that uh, that you're there 100% of the time. You're always at the bedside. You're not leaving the hospital. I think it's more that uh, that internal feeling of, you know what? I'm doing my best. And even if my patients may not like me (laughs) uh, all the time, they respect me. And uh, you know, it's something where we're working on these things together.
0: And there's this moment where you find your population in the book. And I think I want to connect that to excellence too. How did you figure out your population?
1: So my clinical work is with individuals with developmental disabilities, and so I work at what's called the Neurobehavior Home Program, which is uh, an outpatient clinical program for this population, and I do primary care, but we have psychiatry and case management and therapy, et cetera. Um, I had always envisioned myself as working with uh, an underserved population, and I think it It may have been part of the cliche where when we interview for medical school, everyone says, well, I just want to help people. And then uh, we know from evidence that oftentimes that's beat out of you, so to speak, (laughs) during medical school or residency. And I always, in the back of my mind, always held on to that notion of, okay, this is something where I need what I do to have meaning, and the meaning I found was working with this population. Um, it wasn't anything I expected uh, or went into. It, um, In some ways, I kind of fell into it. I wasn't aware of uh, this clinic really until uh, my third year of residency, and the family doc who worked there said, hey, I know you're interested in academics. Come check this out. You know, We, we have a position. Um, let's see if this is a fit for you, and It absolutely was. And I do think, to your point, I do think that is a part of the excellence that I want to achieve. Um, Certainly, it's not for everybody, and everyone's going to have different circumstances, and that's okay. Uh, But for me, that is the connection that I need with my patients and with my career and with myself.
0: And, And also what you're dealing with internally with mental illness, anxiety, depression, ends up teaching you who you can serve, which I think is a a great connection to make. A lot of times there's that relationship. If we're willing to go internal, there's there's some guidance we can get. Um, The next one is authenticity. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, and part of it was fully recognizing, I think. I don't, you know, I had anxiety for years and then didn't really develop the depression until residency. And I'm not sure I fully recognized it as such at the time. Um, I knew I was struggling. I knew it was hard. I knew that uh, I worried that I was losing my humanity, that I just didn't care as much, uh, which was very hard on me. Um, But I didn't fully recognize that that was was coming from the gargoyle, so to speak. That was kind of this uh, uh, depression that was creeping up. And I had been on on multiple medications. I'd seen multiple therapists, uh, things would help a little bit or for short term and, and then, uh, things would get tough again. And I did just kind of have to keep at it, um, in terms of finding that right fit for me. Uh, you know, thankfully not everybody needs medication. Um, a lot of people aren't to that point. I do recommend therapy for everybody <laughs> because I think that's that can be so helpful in so many ways. Um, but also being able to do the little things that really make a big difference, such as exercise, you know, that plays a big role. And one of the things I hear so much from residents and that I experienced is, you know, I don't have time to exercise or when I do have time I'm so exhausted like I just want to sleep or I have to do laundry or go to the store or you know whatever it is and uh, so that I think was part of why it took so long is being able to have that time to separate enough emotionally from uh, training and from medicine to be able to uh, work on those things as I needed to
0: Mm mm-hmm and you, and then you start to find a voice, I think, in that process. So first, I think there's a big self-care theme, like figuring out what self-care means for you. And I think that's different for everybody. So I see some authenticity there. And then you start to find your voice, too. Can you talk about how you kind of started to find your voice?
1: Part of it, too, I think, was when I decided to start being more open about this. Um, about my struggles, Uh, that really helped click things. Um, And, you know, that doesn't mean that everybody has to write a book or, you know, write about their experiences or whatever it is. But having people to talk to about it that you trust uh, is huge, is really big in finding that voice, so to speak. Um, I think there was a combination of also working with uh, family medicine residents and medical students and PA students and uh, where if you get any three or four of these together, there's gonna be someone dealing with this. And so it's even just being that listening ear uh, does a lot for them, but also does a lot for me. Um, And so when I'm working with students or residents, You know, I I want them to know that I do care about their wellness and that I am trying to uh, help them as much as possible, and I am a sincere listening
0: ear. Um, let's debunk leadership a little bit. That's the last letter here. Um, Describe that, and then maybe contrast that with how you've emerged as a leader.
1: Leadership is tough. Uh, because, like you say, there's still a lot of that old guard mentality among many. Um, And I do want to clarify when I say that, I'm not demonizing all old physicians (laughs) or physicians who were trained many years before me, because I do feel like things are improving. Um, And uh, there is, I do point out in the book that, hey, I'm highlighting these negative experiences, but they were in the minority of the experiences but were just so influential but leadership really does take a lot of attention to some of these struggles and understanding where they come from and how they can manifest in learners or employees or colleagues or or wherever um I was reading just the other day about different elements of leadership that significantly decrease burnout, uh, both amongst physicians, but amongst others. And really it is about paying attention, caring about the individual, uh, being willing to listen, uh, but also working with them to say, what do you want out of your career? And what can I help you? How can I help you achieve that? And so it really is uh, supporting people through their decisions and through their goals and through their passions. And uh, since joining the faculty, I do feel like I've had a lot of that, a lot of that positive of, of hey, we want you to be successful in how you define it. What, what can we do to help you get there? Uh, and that really is huge and makes such an, a big impact.
0: Yeah, I think there's this idea of coaching and rapport building, and um, much different than uh, hierarchical. It seems like it's almost flattening things, uh, and that that's kind of the. I think that is the shift. I agree. I, I don't think we're not talking about it as if that it's not happening, but we need more of it, right? Yes. And I think that that's hopefully, you know, the future of of. Uh, leadership development I even hesitate to um, the word leadership and leadership development I think in training it's more professional identity. it's more like who you are and what you want to do and and how your value system informs that and and so the leader in that moment is is really trying to facilitate and help and support that process as opposed to you know calling the shots and directing everything. So that's, anyway, I appreciated that um, discussion. At the end of the book, you, um, I feel like you give a list of things you hope for and things that maybe the system needs. What do you think that includes? What's your idea of what that includes?
1: There are a lot of, of different layers to that as well. I think there are some that are personal, there are some that are in your immediate practice, there are some that are on an organization level, some on a uh, state and national level, and so there are a lot of different ways that we need to approach that. You know, approach some of these things on each level, and I want physicians and students and everyone to recognize the impact that they do have uh, within kind of their more immediate circle. It's not going to solve everything and the the problems with burnout specifically are more external um, as opposed to internal with depression or anxiety but we do have the ability to control and change some things within our immediate environment to help us out now typically when when we talk about uh, changes it immediately goes to system-wide country national wide which is so daunting and so difficult, and some of the things are probably impossible. And so certainly there are things happening at that level and there are things you can do at that level, but I think it does need to take uh, a smaller uh, thing where, hey, within not only within our immediate practice environment, within our organization, within the university system, there are things you can engage in and work towards. Uh, i think one of the biggest things that needs to help is more recognition uh, which i do feel like covid has uh, sped up that we are recognizing the issue we are seeing so many physicians and nurses and students leave the profession now because of of all of the stressors and so it that we are seeing a lot of organizations saying oh dear we we're going to keep losing all of these people. And so once you realize, Oh, we're losing them and it's going to wreak a lot of havoc on, on what we're trying to accomplish as a healthcare organization, they're going to pay a lot more attention.
0: Yeah. I appreciate that on the big level. What about on the personal level?
1: You know, it look, it can look like a lot of different things and, and many, many things are kind of depending on the individual. Um, I for example for me I love jigsaw puzzles and so and that's actually been shown that that's a way of taking chaos and organizing it and putting it together that really has a big impact on your mental health and seeing all the chaos that you're experiencing now of course that doesn't need to be for everybody but even just doing that for five or ten minutes a day does help me um but making sure that you are fitting that in, in a way that works for you.
0: This episode of the Real MD podcast is produced by Raquel Rodriguez and me, Tom Hurtado. Raquel Rodriguez also mixed the episode. Special thanks to Scott Singpil, Scope Radio, and University of Utah Health. The Real MD podcast is part of the Real MD program at the Spencer Fox Eccles School of Medicine at the University of Utah. This program helps medical students find meaning, community, and purpose during their training and future careers. Our theme song, Energizer Bunny, is by my son's band, Hurtado. You can find our podcast on major platforms. Thanks for listening.